0: Our Scripture reading this morning is from the book of Hebrews in chapter 6. Starting with the 13th verse. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham Having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and all uh, in all their disputes on an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Amen. We are in Exodus chapter 1. Uh, oh, got the read the catechism and let's see I think it's question 18 will God allow our disobedience and idolatry to go unpunished the answer no God is righteously angry with our sins and will punish them both in this life and in the life to come okay and our children are dismissed Exodus, we briefly read uh, the first seven verses last week of chapter 1, and uh, what those seven verses basically do is link Genesis and Exodus together. Um, They are best understood together. Uh, they are they are a, one's a sequel and one's a prequel, obviously, as the way it would look at it, and as together they make a, a more complete story. Last week we talked about Joseph and the famine that came and hit the land, especially uh, the land of Canaan, but also even into Egypt, and how Joseph had prepared after being sold by his brothers. Uh, he was, then became the uh, number two man in Egypt under Pharaoh and helped Pharaoh and Egypt prepare for the famine. And uh, off the, at, at the middle of the famine, approximately uh, two years into it anyway, um, they, he was rescued his brothers and his father by having them come to the land of Egypt where he could make sure that they were taken care of or they would survive. It was 70 plus that went to uh, Egypt and he had the support of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, uh, not only his support, but he supplied everything that Joseph's family needed to leave Canaan and come to Egypt. And uh, he gave them supplies, the things that they needed to get started, and uh, just blessed them. And then uh, He gave them the very best land to live in, the land of Goshen. So, uh, now Exodus begins by covering the 400 years between Joseph's death in Genesis 50 And the Exodus, and uh, those 400 years uh, are recorded in just seven verses here. (laughs) So let's read the first seven verses this morning. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household: Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah; Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin; Dan and Naphtali. Gad and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob, were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. The land where they were in Goshen was filled with them. You have this uh, area of Goshen, which was uh, part of obviously part of Egypt. It's, it was the, the eastern boundary would be the land of Canaan, the land promised to Abraham and his families, and Isaac and Jacob. And then the boundary on the uh, west side would be the uh, delta and Nile rivers. So you can imagine how. Fruitful this land could be under the right circumstances, with uh, the access to the Nile River and, and the, the flooding that would occur every year, and uh, the land they grew. It says here is in uh, uh, strength, ex- exceedingly strong, is an interesting phrase, and what it means basically is that they were, how do I put it, almost like above and beyond normal health. They just uh, they they were prosperous in their health, prosperous in their work. Uh, And so uh, their children, when born, the low death rate and and that idea of exceedingly strong ties into that. And so uh, the land of Goshen was literally filled with them. And uh, they they prospered amazingly. Well, now we're looking... uh, you know, six, four to six generations down the line, after Joseph has died and Jacob has passed away, and and uh, they're still there they're in the land of of Goshen, and a prophecy that was made to Abraham in Genesis chapter fifteen comes to fruition here. Uh, let's look at Genesis uh, chapter fifteen quickly. And uh see, we start with the thirteenth verse. Then the Lord said to Abram, "Now, for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will shall come out with great possessions. Now that's the picture that God gives this to Abram uh, as He's calling him to the land of Canaan in the first place. And so here we have this this prophecy God gives. And and so in verse 8, we see this persecution and affliction that's going to come about. It says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. There's a lot of speculation about who this king, this pharaoh was uh, by name and, and by uh, ethnicity in other words because during, during the, this area and time of history Egypt had some invasions. They had some uh, kings and, uh, and or pharaohs that were not uh, of Egyptian heritage. Uh, then the Egyptians would come back and, and capture it. And so, there's a lot of different ideas as to exactly the timing of this. And so, that would depend on, you know, kind of you determine, oh, well, it was this group of people or it was this group of people. I believe it was an Egyptian pharaoh and uh, it was uh, you know 400 years down the line and most likely a new dynasty. And he looked at this land and this people And and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many, too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. A wise consideration. This was not uncommon. Uh, clear into the uh, 1800s in, in fact that you would have immigrants in an area where uh, they, their uh, ancestry would invade that country and the next thing you know you got an, an uprising from within and it helped take over the country and this type of thing and you still hear of it in South America and, and, and other areas so the pharaoh looks at this and he says there's just too many of them and they are mighty in other words, he's looking at him and said, "This, this picture—they're healthy people. They're strong. They could rise up against us, and not only rise up against us, but then they could uh, help a country take over us and then leave. And so uh, we need to do something, especially with this idea of what if a war happened, and that was not uncommon at this time. So verse 11." Uh, comes into this picture. It says, Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, uh, Pithom and Ramses. And so here's two cities that they built. It's, it's just uh, possibly representative of what they were building. Uh, and they made them basically slaves. Uh, the idea was, it says they hired task. They, they put together taskmasters. The taskmasters, by the way, it's an interesting thing. Most of them were Hebrew. But they had sold out to Egypt. And so they knew the people and their habits and, and the, their religion, their faith, and yet they uh, were working for the Egyptians. And it says they afflicted them with heavy burdens. The idea of heavy burdens was the, I, uh, was the picture of working so hard, so long. One of the, the things that they did was to uh, do the farming within the in the field work and digging canals in, and and uh, so that water could flow through into the fields and this type of thing. And they made bricks for the buildings. They uh, we're building, literally involved in building the cities and, uh, like I said, working the fields. In verse 12, interesting picture starts to develop. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Now, it's not just the Pharaoh. It's the Egyptians themselves, the people of Egypt. They were in dread. They were saying, this is something that we're concerned about, we're afraid of. And you can have to see God's hand here. The harder they worked them, the more burdens they put on them, the more they multiplied. God was clearly in this picture. And so, as they, they multiply, as they grow as a, as a people in number, uh, it says the Egyptians were in dread. And it means abs- this is kind of the fear that has, not, that has nothing to do with the fear of God. It has to do with the fear in the sense of I'm afraid. When we say you fear of God, it's not I'm afraid of God. It's an awe of God and His majesty and overwhelm. This fear is legitimate heart-pounding fear. And so verse 13, uh, it says, So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. The idea of ruthlessly here is without any mercy. They, they worked them as hard as they possibly could. Uh, and they made their lives, it says in verse 14, it says it made their lives bitter. The idea of bitter here is, is uh, bad water. I don't know if you've ever drank from a stream where the water is actually bitter because of the minerals. Uh, but it's, it's that idea. It's it's not palatable. And They made their lives unpalatable. Uh, bitter. Frustrating for them. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, verse 15, one of whom was named... Sifrar and the other Huha, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him, but if it's a daughter, she shall live. What he was doing was basically the midwives, and they were the Hebrew midwives, were uh, and I named two of them. We don't know whether these were overseers of midwives or just happened to be the two that got mentioned or, or what. But the idea is that when the birth baby was coming out of in birth, they would, and the idea was actually, and this is a, a, a terribly gruesome picture, but they would, the word is to pith, P I T H, them, It was to put a, a, a sharp object in the neck. And, and, and turn it around, it would get the lower area of the brain. And it would, they would be obviously dead. The idea was to uh, get rid of the, the male children, kill the sons. And the midwives, it says very clearly in verse 17, they feared... God So they didn't do it. By the way it, uh, the Pharaoh gets very upset with them, uh, basically asks them in verse 18, "Why have you done this and let the male children live And the midwife said to Pharaoh, "Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous, And give birth before the midwife comes to them. Now, people are looking at this, was they making an excuse? Was this a legitimate answer? Uh, And most scholars think it was a legitimate answer. The women were hard workers. They worked in the fields. They uh, did a lot of the things that that, uh, were strenuous work and, and therefore making them strong. And so they're saying... These women were able to give birth without the help of a midwife. Uh, they didn't bother to call us in time or whatever, and so they're basically coming alongside them and, and not willing to kill them in the first place. And and so uh, the pharaoh is asking, the king of Egypt is asking these midwives, how come they haven't done what he asked them to do? And they said, because we never get there in time. And the real picture here is the midwives feared God. Did they not get there in time because they drugged their feet? Or did they not get there in time because the Hebrew women did not call them in time, get a hold of them in time uh, to come? Or both? But the male children uh, would live and so the king of Egypt, he calls them and says, you know, how, you know, this is wrong. And so the midwives said to Pharaoh, again, what the Hebrew women, uh, they give birth before we come. And so God dealt with the midwives. Now where it says dealt with the midwives, it literally would translate, He blessed them. He dealt with them prosperously. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. The numbers increased and they grew strong. Verse 21. They grew strong because the midwives feared God and He gave them families. Now, what it means is that He blessed them with children as as well. And the implication because of the context would be it blessed them with male children. So, this is a powerful picture of God's intervention. And the Pharaoh with all his power Possibly the most powerful potentate, if you will, in the North African and Middle East area is being unable to control population growth of the Hebrew people in the land of Goshen. They multiply and they grow stronger. Verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded. This was no longer something that appeared to be kind of subversive and secretive. He commands, in other words, he makes an eek, all his people. In other words, this is goes across the land. Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. What would happen if this was accomplished would be the elimination of the Hebrew culture within a generation. The Hebrew women would meld into the population of the uh, Egyptian uh, population and they would be rid of this threat that they saw of, of a potential antagonist in their midst. By the way, hand, this, is, this has been handled this way. Interestingly enough, the segregation or the, the, the subjugation of, of uh, people who are of an ethnic group with that, when they're in a, in a foreign land to their culture, original culture, even if they've been born in that land, are isolated and taken off when they're at bat, when the country is at battle with uh, another. Uh, country. We did that here in the United States uh, with the Japanese. And uh, if you look at some of the history, some of it was very wrong as to what happened and how it was done. And so, this tends to be the way to try to handle a problem. And it's not it doesn't work. <laughs> it's, it's wrong and it doesn't work. But here we have the Hebrew people. God is protecting something here. And I've shared this with you before. He's protecting... What what some scholars call the scarlet thread from the very beginning of time and and humanity genesis chapter 3 verse 15 after sin had happened god brought judgment on the satan on the woman and on the man and with the satan he says the woman is going to have a he basically put it: the seed of woman, and the seed is is singular there. It's and so the idea is, is a unique personage from the woman is going to rise up against the devil, and the devil's going to be able to bruise this person's heel which means to to apparently take him down. But he will rise up and crush his head. And the idea of crushing his head is to put his foot over his head, not literally crush it, but to show that he is in control. And Satan is the author of death. And now we have the statement in Scripture, death, where is your sting? It's been erased. How? By Jesus Christ in the cross. Okay, and so this idea of, of uh, protecting this line, this is what God is doing. He's protecting the lineage of Christ. And this is, you know, Pharaoh says, all, all, all the Hebrew sons, cast them into the Nile. Let the daughters live. And like I said, if Pharaoh's plan had worked within a generation, maybe a little bit longer, he would have had full control over the land of Goshen. And, and, and the problem is of, of the Hebrew men would have been eliminated. It's not what happened because God is sovereign. He has a plan. He told Abraham this was going to happen but that it was only going to be something that would, if anything would strengthen the resolve of what was going to ultimately come about and their land of Canaan in the future the many nations that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be responsible for. There's a side here which I find absolutely fascinating. If you review Egyptian history in the Egyptian calligraphy and, 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 and uh, the, the pictographs and stuff like that, I Obviously, I don't have any skills in that, but I have the books that tell me from the guys who do. And the interesting thing here is that during this whole picture that we're reading, not one pharaoh is named. That was something really important to them. To have their name out there from the very point they took the throne and even before they were part of the throne, that their name would be seen in some kind of a, a, a picture or, or, or a cuneiform writing. Somehow it would be there. And, and, and so the fact that the Scripture simply doesn't mention it is really quite fascinating. It doesn't say... And somebody says, well, what about the city of Ramses? Wasn't Ramses a Pharaoh? Uh, that's not what's mentioned. The city's mentioned. Because the Hebrew people built it, but he's not mentioned as the pharaoh at that time. It's just it. So you can't use that one. And and but it's interesting too is that two midwives are named. Two low class Hebrew people are named, but no pharaoh is named. And this just shows that again, God his His way of putting things together has nothing to do with the way we look at it in the world what what we think might have been very important isn't part of his plan it just that's not an issue and when you look at history, you know all the 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 pharaoh history is strictly history, and amazingly, the Hebrew people are still with us and uh, we, we know that God's hand has been on that. And I put here on my notes that Shephara and, and, and Pufa will be remembered for all time because we're told that God's Word is eternal. For all, all time and beyond time, if you will. Their names are going to be remembered as heroines of God's people. And they're heroines for us as well because they are responsible for keeping the scarlet thread running. And so, I just look at this and just uh, I I, I get amazed sometimes. It's simple things that I've missed for so long. Great pharaohs, unmentioned, two lowly midwives, eternally recognized. you need to know and, and this is, is is made really clear jumping ahead uh, in Exodus chapter 5 when um, Moses gets involved in and in, uh looking to uh release uh, get the the Hebrew people released um Chapter 5, verse 2. Well, let's go to verse 1. Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, and this is the arrogance of Pharaoh, Who is the Lord that I should obey? Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Such arrogance. You read in Romans about the people making gods out of objects of nature and this type of thing. Again, such arrogance. There is a God... He is the creator of the universe, and for the pharaoh to be informed of him, to see in some ways his power has already been at work in his culture, and to say eh, he's nothing to me. And of course, we see, as we was predicted in Genesis, the Hebrew people will leave Egypt, and not only leave Egypt. With their stuff, but they're going to leave Egypt with Egypt's stuff as well, and Egypt's going to be glad to see them go. Satan knows the prophecies. He knows about the scripture in Genesis chapter three. He was, or he was there, along with his, you know, the picture that was. Put on E, the picture that was put, the, the, the judgment that was put on Adam and the judgment that was put on him. And uh, if he can, I, I, I believe this, if he can only break the thread, the seed that ultimately becomes Christ to the cross, if he could only break the thread, He would ruin the plan of God. And I think, how can he possibly think that that he's going to succeed? Other than the fact that he is the great deceiver, and I believe he has deceived himself. I believe he's as active today as he's ever been, and I believe that his desire is to confuse us at best, and weaken our testimony if he could, and, you know, if at all keep you away from God from the in the beginning of, of of things in order to wait make you weak and less effective, and so Satan is there trying to disrupt the plan of God, and I believe he is believes that he can win, and he fights like that as if he could win that's why we need if he tells us about the the armor that we need to fight the enemy, and the enemy isn't a people. It is the demonic it is Satan. I recall recall the temptations of Jesus. In chapter four of of Matthew, for instance, the temptations of Jesus, he was tempted multiple things to to do, to turn bread, you know, rocks into bread, things that only the Messiah could do. By the way, that was after forty days of being in the wilderness And the 40 days, he was being tempted as well. These were the three last temptations that were given to him. The very last temptation was, okay, here's all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus. They're yours. If you'll just acknowledge that I basically have the authority to give them to you. This tells you that Satan was the prince of the fallen world and he did have the authority and Jesus knew that that wasn't the way number 1 and number 2 he, he already knew what he was there for a plan before the foundation of the world put together and agreed to and and so but but that picture is that satan trying to disrupt even in the temptations of Jesus the plan of salvation if he could just get him to take the control of the world this way the cross would be ignored, and Satan would have death on his side. You know that's Satan. He, he's at work with this, and you could see it here as well with Pharaoh. By the way, the Book of Exodus is full of what is called types, pictures, if you will. I, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the old pictures out of the 1800s. They were called tin types. And when you looked at the the picture, it was a vague facsimile uh, that undeveloped on a on a on a piece of metal uh, from the photograph from the light that had gone through. and And when it was developed, you could make it clear, but it was a type of what was going to come. And so the scriptures is full of types. And in this this picture, I, I you see Pharaoh as a type of Satan, Egypt as the world, and the Hebrew people, the church. And we are the children of Abraham. Genesis or uh, Galatians tells us very clearly that, that is our label, and uh, so uh, we can look at this and say this is for us. It's not just history. This is our history that was put together in such a way that we would be able to read it and look at it and see God's finger on everything in order for us to be here in this room today praising Jesus Christ as our Savior. That's an awesome picture. It's an awesome thing to know how much God really loves us. We share every week here with the communion and the, the picture of the Last Supper, uh, Jesus uh, sharing the, the communion with the, the disciples. And so at this point, I would ask that uh, uh, as we, we celebrate with Thanksgiving what God has done, And I I put it down here again. The seed of God, Jesus Christ, has overcome death and Satan. And as a result, for all believers, death has lost its sting. And we celebrate, as we read in the Apostles' Creed, we have eternal life. So, I would ask the worship team to come up and uh, sing the song for communion. Uh, you're invited to come up and pick up the communion up here and uh, hold it until we've all been served and we'll share it together. In Matthew chapter 26, actually starting with the 26th verse, it's recorded, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, He broke it. And He gave it to the disciples and He said, Take, eat, this is My body. Let's share the bread. He took a cup, And when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is My blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let us share. He concludes this time with them and He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in My Father's kingdom. I believe that's at the marriage feast of the church and the Lamb. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for these emblems that remind us of who You are and what You've done for us. We are not worthy. Only You are worthy. But through You, we have been covered by the blood of the cross. And by accepting You, confessing You and believing in our hearts that You are the Christ, the risen One, You make it very clear that we are saved. That we have eternal life. And we thank You. As we go through Your Word, we ask, Lord, that You would always open our hearts and our minds. That we would see fresh things, new things, exciting things. That we would tie things together through Your Holy Spirit opening our heart and mind that we would see the full picture. We thank You this morning for the opportunity to be together, to worship, to praise, and to be in Your Word together. Go with us as we leave this place today. Cause us to be watchful around us. The things that would lead us away as well as the things that would lead us to You would be obvious, and also the opportunity to share Your love with someone else. We worship You. We praise You. Thank You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Would you stand as we close, please?